Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies that you can use to get the breakthrough you're looking for in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Nevada Gray. Joining me is my co-host, Chris Donahue. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we invite you to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information is provided for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your own personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet and fitness. Dr. Nick Norwood, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time. You have all these amazing fun facts about science. You have this awesome cookbook coming out, The New Mediterranean Diet, and all sorts of information about cholesterol and lipid metabolism. And I want to delve into all of these topics because our listeners are curious. But first off, for uh, our listeners that may not know who you are, can you share a little bit about your story and your journey? Absolutely. I'm sure most of your listeners don't know who I am because I'm kind of new to this space. You said I was, you're following me on Twitter for some time. I only started tweeting this summer. I'm um, a recently minted uh, PhD student from Oxford. So I'm 25. I should say that I'm, I'm quite young and um, I got into this space through my own experience with a ketogenic diet, really curing my own maladies. So until I was uh, 18, I had no problems, and then I developed osteoporosis, ulcerative colitis, a set of metabolic diseases. Things kind of went downhill. There was one point I actually ended up in a, a palliative care ward, which was like a death ward, and um, my heart rate was in the 20s. It was really just, you know, analogous to a lot of people's stories where you lose hope a little bit in, in the, the classical system, and then you find your own path through, in this case, nutrition. You know, I'm a ketogenic diet, so I adopted a ketogenic diet, which, you know, at the time I thought, oh, this is silly. High fat diet. I've tried all the drugs and none of them have worked. This is never going to work, but I have nothing to lose. You know, where we are now, you can probably guess it worked very well. And really everything resolved for me. It just completely shattered all my preconceptions about nutrition and just got me really enthused into this space. So I did a PhD at Oxford. I'm going to be starting at Harvard Medical School as a um, MD student, so I want to get my MD PhD, be a physician scientist, and just um, you know, my life mission now is to delve into this um, metabolism and nutrition area as a researcher, um, treat people as a clinician through what I call metabolic medicine, food is medicine, whatever you want to call it, and then to advocate the, the perspective, educate people, including other clinicians, the lay public. Like I said, I'm young. I'm still figuring out exactly how I want to do that. There's so many cool ways. It's just uh, uh, an exciting time to be getting into the space. So I'm still forming. I'm not like a lot of your other uh, guests, I'm sure. Like I know Chris Palmer, who I know well was on recently. Like he's super well established, really admirable guy, um, leader in the field. I'm coming into it. 
which is uh, a different perspective, but um, I'm really excited. So thank you for having me on. And I'm excited to delve into whatever we're going to talk about. Yes, that must have been a, a terrifying situation to be in being so young. And I think it's so admirable that you took your adversity and now you're furthering your education to be able to help others through what you have learned. Uh, one of the things that I think is a fascinating topic, um, and I know that you're very passionate about, is cholesterol. And there's a lot of confusion regarding cholesterol and lipid metabolism for people that are on the ketogenic diet. And they may be getting this great result and they feel fantastic. And then they go for a blood panel and their cholesterol is elevated and their doctors will get nervous. And that becomes a barrier uh, for a patient that's finding success with that. So I was wondering if we could just set a foundation for our listeners and actually define what is cholesterol and, and what does it do in our body? Yeah, um, certainly. So this is, first I want to say this is something I am very passionate about. And for those of you who get uh, bored of me rambling on, one thing I want to mention up front is um, I was so interested in it that when this happened in me, so when I adopted a ketogenic diet, my cholesterol levels went through the roof, which would make most doctors nervous. Um, me and a, a doctor friend of mine, we did actually a little study. We made some predictions about what was happening really at the metabolic level, what we would see if we delved into not just, you know, standard lipid panel, but the in-depth panel. Um, and then we did that. We had, you know, um, data from before I started the diet and from after. And then we published this report in Frontiers in Medicine, um, basically talking about how standard lipid panels are insufficient for the care of at least this individual, myself, um, although we didn't tell the reviewers that, but it was published, um, on a ketogenic diet. So the punchline, and hopefully what we can get into, is that when you adopt a ketogenic diet, it's possible your cholesterol levels go up. But why they go up is really important. And why they go up on a ketogenic diet is very different than why they go up on a standard Western diet. Um, so I just want to be upfront about that. That's hopefully what we're going to get into. But as to your question, what is cholesterol? Well, cholesterol is um, a biomolecule. Kind of think of it, it looks like Olympic rings. There's a set of ring structures, but there's four rings. So think about Olympic rings and one fell off. That's kind of what it looks like. And it has a lot of critical functions in the body. It's a precursor to a lot of hormones. So estrogen and testosterone, as well as vitamin D. It's a key component in cell membranes, all the membranes across your body. It's really important in your brain, especially. Your brain would fall apart without cholesterol. Um, and in creating bile acids, um, which help you digest fat. So it's, it's a critical molecule. Our body wouldn't make it if we didn't need it. In fact, your liver makes most of it. You get a little bit from your diet, but most of it is produced endogenously by your liver. So... With the standard American diet and the ketogenic diet, uh, for listeners that may be new to these terms, can you set the foundation for what each diet looks like? So as we delve into how cholesterol and lipid metabolism works in the body, uh, people will have a context with the nutrition approach. So a standard American diet or standard Western diet is rich in fats and carbs. Whereas a ketogenic diet is also high fat, but lowering carbs, and that changes metabolism. So 
um, you know, you can think standard American diet, think like a cheeseburger, you get the buns, the carbs, and then generally more like refined foods, like maybe a slice of refined cheese, processed meat. So a lot of the food is generally processed. I think standard American diet is just kind of the worst you can get. Think about it that way, which is why in a lot of the epidemiology or the you know uh, correlational research population based research anything compared to a standard american diet usually does well i'm not a proponent of veganism or vegetarianism per se but if you just take two populations vegetarians standard american diet or you do an intervention the vegetarians are going to come out on top it doesn't mean it's an ideal diet but basically anything's better than a standard american diet whereas a ketogenic diet it shares the feature of being rich in fat but there isn't carbs. And generally, if you do it correctly, you know, it'll be a clean ketogenic diet. It'll be healthy fat sources. You're not going to be getting your fat from like Ben and Jerry's ice cream and McDonald's. You're going to be getting your fat from extra virgin olive oil and ghee and grass-fed fatty steaks. So um, that's really the distinction between the two. The standard American diet is generally more refined foods, high fat, high carb, ketogenic diet, high fat, low carb and hopefully a pretty clean diet. So when patients go to their doctor and they get their cholesterol panel, there are several things that we're familiar with, the LDL, the HDL, and the triglycerides. And as we delve into the lipid metabolism in the body, can you take us through the mechanisms of how the ketogenic diet impacts each one of those markers in relation to what they do in the body? Because I know uh, people listening to this podcast will immediately pull up their blood work uh, to follow along to see what is happening and what does my blood work mean? Yeah, of course. So uh, let's just think about a standard lipid panel, which is going to have, you know, four components, which you kind of mentioned. So there's going to be total cholesterol. Then there's going to be LDL cholesterol. HDL cholesterol and triglycerides. So just to break those down, total cholesterol is, you know, total cholesterol. It's pretty clear. And then it's made up mostly of cholesterol that's in LDL and cholesterol that's in HDL. Now, what I want to clarify is that LDL and HDL themselves, they're not cholesterol. They are particles that carry cholesterol. So an LDL particle is um, like a little sphere and it contains within it triglycerides, which is fat fuel um, for tissues, um, and then cholesterol. And then there's proteins, too, called lipoproteins, which are around it. So, And then HDL is similar. It's just um, it's a different sort of particle. It also contains cholesterol, little triglycerides, and proteins, different proteins. Um, but both HDL and LDL, they're cholesterol-carrying particles. They are not themselves cholesterol. Now, the standard perspective is that, um, you know, LDL is, quote, bad cholesterol, and HDL is what your doctors might call good cholesterol. Um, to simplify things, let's just agree that HDL is good cholesterol. We can delve into HDL a little more if you want. There's actually many different types, more or less four, depending on how you break it up. HDL may have different functions, but you can think of them as, like, cleaning up your arteries and having antioxidant functions. HDL is good, so you want high HDL. That's clear enough. Um, LDL is where things get tricky. And, and this is what um, I think is most misunderstood. So the reason people think of LDL 
as bad cholesterol is that the standard model is that um, LDL is around in the bloodstream and it sinks down to your artery, you know, your blood vessel um, walls, and then it nucleates a plaque and a plaque builds and it clogs your arteries and you have a heart attack. That's typically what people think. Um, what we have to understand about LDL is that it does serve a function in the body. Its function really evolutionarily is to carry fat fuel. Like I said, it carries triglycerides and cholesterol to tissues that need them and to carry cholesterol. Like I said, it's needed all over the body to your brain to places that need them. So LDL is this, let's think of it as, as a boat carrying fuel around the body. Now, what happens on a standard American diet, and I'm going to use this little boat analogy I've kind of adapted from Dave Feldman, who you probably know. He talks about the cholesterol boats carrying triglyceride fuel and then um, cholesterol as well. It's like the lifeboats. But, you know, the, the LDL particle is released, it's produced by your liver and it's carrying um, fat to your tissues. But when you're eating a standard American diet that's rich in, say, sugar, what happens is that sugar, think about it like little sugar glaciers in your blood. And the LDL boats, they bump into them, um, they get damaged, and then they can't return to harbor at the liver. They can't go to um, the muscles to stock up fuel. So they kind of linger around, sink down to the bottom. And your LDL levels will go up because your boats are being damaged and they can't go back to the liver and they're just accumulating. And, and what happens over time physiologically, this analogy isn't great to communicate that, but um, on a standard American diet, when the LDL is being damaged and it can't be taken back up in cycle, it becomes small and dense. And that small, dense LDL is really what sinks down to the bottom of the blood vessel and, and causes atherosclerosis, heart disease. Now, that's distinct from a ketogenic diet. And in the case of a ketogenic diet, what happens is you're actually not relying as much on glucose for fuel carbs, right? So your body needs to burn more fat. Now, if your body and your muscles are going to be burning more fat, how do they get that fat? Well, they need it to be shipped. So the LDL then needs to, LDL levels, the boats need to go up to carry more triglyceride fuel passengers to the muscles. And so in this boat analogy, you have the one case, the standard American diet, where the boats are getting damaged and accumulating because they're getting damaged and sinking to the bottom. And in the other case, you have this healthy boat economy, this healthy metabolism that you have more LDL being shipped out um, going to your muscles, dropping off fuel, then returning to port at the liver to pick up more triglycerides and shuttle back over to the muscles and, you know, just kind of cycle. So the turnover is quite high, but you will have more LDL in general. Um, I'm going to pause here because I've been rambling a little bit. Is that clear? Can I clarify anything? One thing I just wanted to clarify that I think is is really important is how that LDL becomes damaged. There's the oxidative stress, inflammation, and the role of insulin resistance and the, and the glycation. And I just was wondering if you could explain that a little more in depth, as I think that that's important to distinguish between a damaged LDL and an LDL that's doing its job. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like that, LDLs are these um boats that have or these particles that have proteins on the surfaces and those proteins allow them to dock at different harbors so with, with respect to the liver the ldl particle has an apo b lipoprotein one per ldl particle that kind of serves as the boat's passport it gets it into the harbor 
what happens is when there's sugar in the blood, this ApoB gets glycated. So a sugar molecule literally attaches to the ApoB protein, um, which allows it to also get oxidized, but the glycation will block its uptake to the liver. So then it can't get back in. So where does it go? It has nowhere to go. So it just lingers around it and then eventually just sinks to the bottom. Um, and versus if you don't have sugar glycating, this ApoB destroying the passport, you could say, then the LDL particle can get taken back up. And so you just keep healthy LDL particles in the blood when you're not glycating them, when there's not sugar around, um, versus when there is, you get damage to the LDL particles and they have nowhere to go but to the bottom of the artery of the wall. Um, so for all the listeners right now that are looking at their LDL numbers, is there a way to tell whether the LDL is damaged versus not damaged by looking at the blood work? How can they tell? That's the difficult thing, is that on a, on a standard lipid panel, you can't tell directly because they take all these LDL and they group them together. What people should really be ordering, and that's what we showed in this one paper, is a subfractionated lipid panel where you can see um, different types of LDL. So there's oxidized LDL, but really what you want to look for is a size fractionation. So you're going to have big LDL, medium LDL, and small LDL. And this is because... LDL, as it gets older and sits around in the blood, it, it, it degrades and gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It condenses. And it's the small, dense LDL that is really atherogenic. Or it causes heart disease. Um, and so what you want to look for, if you can get a subfractionated lipid panel, if you can get your doctor to order it, is um, a lot of big LDL and very little small LDL. Whereas the assumption, and this is what happened on a standard American diet, is that all L, like if your LDL goes up, the assumption is all the LDL particles are going up. So the large LDL might go up a little bit, but the small and the medium are going up. And that's not necessarily the case on a ketogenic diet. Because if you're just having, you know, this healthy boat economy, you're only going to have young, big, healthy, fluffy LDL floating around. And that's actually what happened to me. So if you want to, I, I forget my exact numbers. You can find them in the report. It's published on, online. But it was something like my LD, my LDL was like 90 and it went up to 320 or 360. And I was like, oh, wow. On a standard lipid panel, you just see my LDL just, what, triples, more, three and a half times. Um, but if you actually look at the size fractionation, what happened was my large LDL went through the roof, but my medium and small actually went down. They didn't even stay where they were, they went down because I didn't have sugar in my diet. So all the increase in LDL was this young, healthy, fluffy LDL, and I was having greater turnover. It was being taken up by the liver, and I was just shuttling the fat as fuel to my muscles. And then my muscles were burning it because I just needed to burn fat as fuel. You become a, quote, fat burner. Um, so that was seen in me, and I've worked with other people who have gotten this, the fractionations, and it's the same as them. If their cholesterol does go up, and it doesn't go up in everybody, but if it does go up, it's usually just the big LDL which is the healthy kind. Um, and then the small, medium, the atherogenic kind go down. So I would re recommend a, a fractionation. Now, generally, if you have low triglycerides and high HDL, that's another proxy that you can kind of look for for a overall, quote, healthy metabolism. And so that suggests that you're in, in a better state, metabolically speaking. I mean, if you want one metric, it's really easy to remember. What I tell people is, um, look at your ratio of triglycerides to HDL. 
And if you can get a triglyceride to HDL level near one or below, that's great. In fact, there was a paper, I think it was um, Jepson 2001. I have to check that. But they showed that if your HDL is above 57 and triglycerides are below 97, this is actually a more lenient ratio than I just suggested, but that having a high LDL was you're basically irrelevant to heart disease risk. Whether it's below 170, above 170 or below 170 didn't affect it. You had like a very minimal risk. Whereas even with low LDL, if your HDL was low and your triglycerides were high, then you were at a much higher risk, like more than twofold risk relative to when your triglycerides were low and your HDL was high. So I've just been saying lots of highs and lows. Bottom line, if you want to look for one thing on a standard of the panel, I would say try to go for a lower triglyceride to HDL ratio. If you can get to near one, that's awesome. So for the people that may have that damaged LDL and they make a nutritional change and make a leap to a ketogenic or a low-carb diet, we often see metabolic markers and cholesterol markers improve. What is the mechanism that occurs? What happens to that damaged LDL and how, how does it change with that nutritional change? Well, LDL particles, they only have, a, I don't know what the half-life is, but it's pretty short. I mean, your what you eat will affect your LDL level, your, your LDL cholesterol levels about three days later and your particle numbers about five days later. So it's just a matter, you know, there's turnover of these molecules. And so if you cut out the carbs, cut out the sugars, you're no longer, to go back to the analogy, putting these sugar glaciers in your blood. They clear out. So then the LDLs can move through and then you kind of force a reliance of your body on fat as fuel. So as you adapt, your LDL might go up, but it's going up now for a different reason. You're shuttling the fat as fuel. You remove the sugar glaciers, your LDLs aren't getting damaged. And so there should be a new generation of LDL particles that are young and healthy. And as well, your HDL might go up, um, in which case you might be clearing out via reverse cholesterol transport some of the damaged LDL. So you can think of HDL kind of as if the LDLs are the boats carrying fat fuel, the HDL is kind of like a cleanup submarine. Maybe you have some debris at the bottom of your artery and um, you know the HDL is going in there and, and cleaning up the leftover debris. One thing I do just want to say, this is maybe a little bit much for uh, cholesterol novices, but but there are other theories about um, how heart disease starts, how plaques develop. And I want to mention one. It was on, I forget what number, but Ivor Cumming had a great podcast about it. It was the outside-in model of um, atherosclerosis. And basically, the model that's being proposed was that rather than this standard model where LDL gets damaged, sinks to the bottom, and nucleates a plaque, that this is going to sound weird. But the, the the damaged LDL particles or the, the you know cholesterol gets into the artery wall via the outside. So if you think about it in a tube, instead of dropping from the inside from the lumen, it comes from the outside. Now, how does that work? Sounds really bizarre. But the way it would work is, there, is there's actually around your coronary vessels, there is vessels that feed them called the vasa visorum. And when you have you know, eat a standard American diet that increases oxidative stress and inflammation, which we can talk about exactly what those are more if you want. Uh, I have some analogies for those as well. But when you have oxidative stress or inflammation in the artery wall, it can damage the blood vessel wall from the inside. And then what happens is there's these vasovastorm vessels on the outside that grow inwards, kind of like roots growing inwards as a response to the damage on the inside. And then they deposit from the outside. 
the cholesterol. And this data originated, this, this hypothesis originated from the fact that if you actually look at the physiology of the developing plaque, there's this like, it, it, it does form from more of the outside of the vessel. Like that's where it kind of starts and it kind of grows inward. So either the, the say quote, damaged cholesterol has to jump a big distance to get to kind of the other side of the inside of the wall, or it comes from the outside. So this is still being debated, but I think it's an interesting fact. And you can go when you're talking to your next, you know, your GP or your BCP, ask them if they know what basivasorum is, because um, they might not. I, I, I think most physicians don't. And it's just, I think it's really interesting that these, you, you think these things would be well understood, but they're still not well understood. There's still a lot of debate. So I don't pretend to be an expert on this by any means. Um, just somewhat aware of the, the the recent debate. So that's my model, or this is another model the data has yet to show. That's so interesting. And my mind is actually wandering uh, regarding the plaques. They not only just happen in the heart uh, with the inflammation uh, that can occur with the damaged LDL, but I'm curious about the neurologic system. Uh, you, you just wrote a wonderful paper with Dr. Palmer regarding neurodegenerative conditions. What, what's happening in, in our neurologic system when our cholesterol is not working right? Well, that's a very complicated question. Let's just say cholesterol is a critical component of the brain. The brain is a huge component of cholesterol. Um, cholesterol is made endogenously in the brain. Um, there are special molecules for transporting cholesterol to where they're needed in astrocytes and PA, including, um, we talk about these different apolipoproteins, like ApoB on LDL and ApoA on HDL. Well, ApoE, um, is another one. And you might've heard of the ApoE4 genotype that puts you at really high risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's involved in cholesterol transport in the brain. And when it's messed up, then cholesterol transport in the brain is messed up. So... One theory of, of Alzheimer's disease is it has to do with messed up cholesterol in the brain. Um, uh, what was I going with this? I'm sorry, I forgot your question. <laughs> oh, regarding uh, cholesterol with the neurologic system, when cholesterol is not doing its job and um, the molecule is misshapen, how can that impact our neurologic system? Um, well, I would actually take a step back and, and think of it more as the, you know, what are the underlying causes of all these different metabolic diseases? What unites heart disease and obesity and neurological diseases? And you mentioned all, or we have mentioned all these things throughout our discussion thus far. I would say there's a triad of metabolic disturbances. And those are oxidative stress, inflammation, and insulin resistance. Um, and those pathologies, they're mutually reinforcing and really, hmm. the way I analogize it, I'm not sure writing an op-ed on this. Um, so I'm just kind of formulating these analogies in my head and I do like analogies, is think about it like a tree. So we're looking at the branches, right? And all these different branches are different diseases. So one branch is diabetes, one branch is obesity, one branch is heart disease, one branch is Alzheimer's, one branch is Parkinson's, whatever. They're all distinct branches, and they all have distinct foliage, distinct symptoms. They manifest differently, and different people might manifest different diseases just based on their genetic predisposition, what we might call diathetes, diathetes, 
sorry, for certain diseases. Um, but they're all united to a common trunk. And those trunk, that trunk is, is metabolic disturbances, you know, oxidative stress, inflammation, and um, insulin resistance that feed all these diseases. They're all united by the trunk. And then that trunk is fed by similar roots, common roots. These are all lifestyle causes that mess up metabolic diseases. So, you know, uh, or cause metabolic diseases like sleep deprivation, chronic stress, sedentary lifestyle. I think the biggest and most important route that kind of informs all the other is nutrition. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to go next with this because we can talk about each of these pathologies individually if you want. What is oxidative stress? What is inflammation? What is insulin resistance? Um, we can go off on a tangent about neurological diseases in particular. The paper you mentioned that uh, Dr. And I, Palmer and I recently wrote was on mental illnesses specifically and how just like all other metabolic diseases that I'm putting in this tree context, they're another branch. And they're caused by these basic physiological mechanisms of oxidative stress, in, inflammation, and, and insulin resistance. And there's good data on this. Let's, let's define what those are, and then um, we can evolve the conversation in, into your research with that, because I think people will find that fascinating. But I like to set the context for the listener um, just so they're aware of the terms that we're using with oxidative stress, inflammation, and insulin resistance. Um, yeah, those, so those terms are not ones I really fully understood until multiple years into um, studying biology. I think most people, even including physicians, might not fully understand them because they're kind of like catch-all umbrella terms. But simplify each with an analogy. I think of oxidative stress as like a bull in a cellular china shop. It bounces around everywhere and it's damaging everything. You know, it damages membranes, it damages proteins, it damages even your DNA. So just think about it as a bull in a cellular china shop. What's actually happening at the metabolic level is that as a byproduct of energy production, you're always going to um, kind of have this electron leakage that jumps onto oxygen-containing molecules, generating what are called reactive oxygen species. This is the bull. And it's what's bouncing around. So when you have inefficient metabolism, like a leaky metabolism, um, then you'll generate these little bulls and they bounce around and they damage everything and they can you know, accumulate DNA damage over a lifetime. In fact, that's the oxidative stress model of aging. Um, aging can be thought of as a metabolic disease of sorts. So oxidative stress is the bull in the china shop. Think about it that way. Inflammation has to do with your immune system. So we have an immune system, and it has an important function to protect us against disease. When you have an infection, your, your inflammation army, it's like an army, you know, you have white blood cells, those are the soldiers, they release cytokines, that's like their grenades and their guns, it's their weaponry, and it defends you against invaders. Um, however, it can be activated via other things that are not just infections. So what we call chronic low-grade inflammation is just this persistent inflammation that is caused by things like chronic stress and a uh, unhealthy diet. These will also activate inflammation just like an infection, but um, chronically, it's always there. And what happens is if you're chronically activating your immune system army on your own turf, it's tossing, tossing grenades around all the time, causing collateral damage. So you're activating your immune system army against yourself with inflammation, with chronic low-grade inflammation, which is really what we mean when we're talking about inflammation in this context. So... Um, oxidative stress is the bull in the china shop. 
inflammation is when your immune system army is overactive and damaging the cells in your body. Hopefully those two things are clear. Um, and then insulin resistance is a state that goes hand in hand with these two things. And it's when your body isn't responding properly to the hormone insulin. So insulin is released when you eat carbohydrates. Um, it's supposed to be released. It helps get glucose into cells. So people tend to think, you know, insulin's function is to increase, you know, the translocation of glucose for transporters to the cell membrane so that the glucose can get to cells and your muscles can metabolize, whatever. Insulin has many, many more functions. So it's the canonical growth hormone. It causes fat cells to grow, muscle cells to grow. It causes um, synapses in the brain to grow. So it has a lot of good functions. Insulin is not a bad molecule. Um, but if you overexpose yourself to carbohydrates, then your body stops listening to insulin. So it's kind of like a habituation response. So if you have a fan on in the background, like if a fan turned on right now in the background behind me, I would notice it. I'm like, oh, I hear a sound. But then it would just kind of keep going. And then you just habituate to it. You start ignoring it. So the same thing will, in a sense, happen to your body if you overexpose it to insulin. And most people do, given the way we live our lifestyles now. So when we evolved, we weren't getting carbohydrates three times a day at minimum. But now people have three meals a day plus snacks, and you're spiking your insulin all day. And eventually, to simplify things, your body just gets tired. It's like, all right, I'm ignoring you. Um, and what happens then is actually, there's an, you know, it, it is associated with an increase in fat storage, um, uh, increase in hunger drive. Your brain doesn't then respond to insulin as well. So you're not getting the benefits of insulin in the brain, which is really important. Um, and is a precursor to dementia. In fact, Alzheimer's disease, you might have heard the term type 3 diabetes referring to Alzheimer's disease um, because insulin resistance is a key feature in the brains of people with neurodegenerative disease. In fact, the two most prominent neurological diseases, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, way before symptoms manifest, you can see a de decrease in cerebral glucose metabolism in the brain, whereas ketone metabolism is still great. So um, those are the kind of the three oxidative stress, insulin resistance, and inflammation, and they all are um, mutually reinforcing. That How they are so gets really complicated because then you do have to delve into the mechanisms, and we can link to that maybe in the show notes. I have a paper on that, on a multi-loop um, multi model of Alzheimer's disease based on these pathologies. But uh, is that clear? We went over the three, I think. Yes, I think that's so clear because they are truly roots uh, for illness. And I think one of the things that's so empowering for people is that when lifestyle factors in nutrition cause illness, they can also be a tool to reverse illness and reclaim our health. And that's one thing I wanted to talk about for people to be empowered because you recently uh, just wrote a book, The New Mediterranean Diet Cookbook, which is um, written by chefs, scientists, and healthcare providers that ties science uh, into the food that we choose to eat and how we can uh, reverse this and, um, you know, reclaim our health. So I was just curious if you could speak to uh, some means in terms of nutrition with the new Mediterranean diet, what, what that consists of and what that looks like in real life for people. Yeah, absolutely. 
So first, just thinking globally, because I love what you said about using, um, you know, food and lifestyle factors might be what cause the metabolic diseases we have, but they're also a way to reclaim our health. And I think that's the only way to go about it. Right now, we all want quick fixes, the easy pill, but um, really, I, I just I think that's a failed model because if you think about it, you know, you have this network of pathologies that's interacting. These oxidative stress, inflammation. There's so many pathways and signaling um, networks that developing drugs via the pharmacological approach that start target a single protein in a single pathway. It, it just it's it, it will never work. You're not targeting enough nodes within the network. It's like you're trying to take down this metabolic disease tree by like cutting off individual leaves rather than you need to address the roots and you need lifestyle for that. So that was the spirit behind this book. And I'll just tell you quickly how the book developed. I was um, getting into this space and really loving working with some individuals um, using nutrition to reclaim their health. And I have this friend Rohan that I met in Oxford. He was a head chef at this restaurant, um, Quad. Um, that is quite popular in Oxford. And we started working together and he found great success through a ketogenic diet. Now he's the guy who's in the kitchen 16 hours a day, constantly surrounded by food, you know, was pre-diabetic, overweight. Just by cutting out carbs, he lost a ton of weight, you know, became very healthy and then became very interested in the space. And we together hosted some healthy eating events to which um, Martina, who's a cookbook author, a keto cookbook author came and then we just hit it off and we became this team and wanted to develop something kind of new that would really blend science, which is my skill with their science, their, their skills, which is, which is cooking. So kind of come together, use our complementary expertise to develop a tool for people that would engage them in health and, and hopefully make learning about nutrition fun. And so we went for this new Mediterranean diet approach. Reason being, um, the Mediterranean diet is kind of accepted to be healthy. I think it's appealing to a lot of people, whereas keto, keto diets are generally off-putting to the masses because they're perceived as like, you know, high in saturated fats, which are still perceived as unhealthy. I, I think that's a little bit of an uncharacterization, but let's just go with that. Um, so you have the Mediterranean diet. If people accept that's healthy, you have a ketogenic diet, which people I think are warming up to. Now, they're not distinct. A lot of times media, they like to like say, what is healthier, this or that? But they're not distinct. In fact, they're perfectly complementary because Mediterranean diet is about your food sources and ketogenic diet is about your macronutrients. Um, and so you can think of them as perpendicular diets. And so if you can find that intersection, you can live at the best of both worlds. So that's kind of the approach we're going for. And that was our starting model. But um, like anything in science, what you do, the way science develops is you have a model. And then you generate hypotheses and you test it and you kind of develop the model. So our starting model was this intersection between, you know, maybe the two best diets. You have the ketogenic diet and the Mediterranean diet. And we find that intersection. And then what we do is we pull from all the scientific literature to then adapt this, what we call the, Medi the ketogenic Mediterranean diet to the new Mediterranean diet where we're saying, you know, we're not just taking Mediterranean foods. We're going to take these all other foods, what we call them, at least in the book, are our seven high-fat superfoods that aren't typical Mediterranean foods, things that you might really like, like chocolate um, and macadamia nuts and coconut, and we incorporate them because we take, we take the literature and we, we adapt the diet to where the literature stands. So the book, the way it's laid out, 
Um, it's it has a preface where we talk about these things: inflammation, oxidative stress, insulin resistance, how they relate to your health. We give a little background on ketogenic, Mediterranean diets, and then we delve into the recipes. Each recipe has you know more in-depth nutrient profiles than a standard cookbook. So not just basic macronutrients, but we give out a whole fat profile with your saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated fats. We give the omega-6 to 3 ratios. And then what I think we're all really passionate about, and something I know you're passionate about, otherwise you wouldn't be hosting this podcast, is, is teaching people. And so as much as possible, we try to incorporate fun facts into the recipe. So like, this is what you're eating. You know, here are the ingredients. Here's something really cool about some of the ingredients, something you should know. And and so hopefully people will get engaged in learning about your nutrition because, it, you know, the motivation to change has to come from the individual. And if people can see nutrition as not a chore, but an opportunity to, like, evolve yourself and improve yourself and constantly be experimenting on yourself, like a personal lifelong journey, um, I think it makes food not only a gustatory pleasure, but like an intellectual one. And that's accessible. I think it should be accessible to everybody, um, not just doctors, not just scientists, but to everybody. And um, so this book was kind of our first attempt at going for that. Uh, and it will have an online component where we'll, you know, put updated studies, get input from different people, recipes from different people. Maybe you can contribute some recipes. I know we've been talking about that. Um, the ideas are still percolating, but that's where we are with that now. And, and we're really excited about it. Yes, and that's one of the things I appreciate so much about your book is the uniqueness to it. And I was just wondering if we can delve into some of those fun facts because you have a ton of them listed. Uh, one of the most popular foods is cheese. Um, so what is it about cheese that we may not know about? Oh, so many things about cheese. I think the thing I would start off with, one of the most popular blogs on Martina's website, I think because of the way I labeled it, the thing I titled it. So... I, I said, I called it, um, I think it was mutant cows, ch ch cheese, mutant cows, opioids, and constipation, something like that. An eclectic series of words. And, and, um, and I want to explain that a little bit. So maybe you've heard of A1 and A2 cheeses. Maybe people haven't. I'll explain what that is anyway. But um, the main protein in cheese is called casein protein. So in milk, there's whey and casein, about 20% is whey, about 80% is casein. But when you make cheese, the whey goes away in the liquid. Um, and so what's left is the casein. Casein is the main protein in cheese. And um, the casein protein, like all proteins, is encoded by a gene in the DNA. Now, in cows, what happened is when we domesticated cattle, this gene, this casein gene, mutated. There was technically, it's called a proline to histidine 67 mutation. But um, what happened with this mutation in the casein protein is it generated a mutant protein that when it goes into your gut, we has, have an enzyme that breaks down the protein into two parts. And one of that, those parts is called beta-casomorphine 7 or BCM7, which as its name suggests, beta-casomorphine is an opioid. So to summarize, cows got a mutation in their DNA that allowed them to make a mutant casein protein that in our guts gets cleaved by an enzyme into an opioid. That opioid binds to mu receptors. It can cause inflammation. It can cause constipation in a lot of people. Um, 
consumption of A1 casein from dairy is associated with autoimmune disorders like type 1 diabetes. Um, it's associated with um, autism spectrum disorder. And, um, and so this A1 protein is pretty accepted, the A1 protein in BCM7, um, to be potentially harmful, inflammatory, and unhealthy. But the catch is that this mutation only happened in domesticated cattle. So what happens if you don't eat cow's milk? What if you have sheep's milk? It, it doesn't have A1 casein. So this mutant protein, I should say, is called A1 casein. Whereas A2 caseins um, don't get broken down into BCM7, and they don't tend to have the same adverse effects. So personally, I eat only um, dairy from non-cow sources. So like goat's milk sources, um, sheep's milk sources, and buffalo. So you can get like buffalo mozzarella or feta cheese from sheep. Substitutes for like Parmesan will be Manchengo from sheep or um, Pecorino Romano are really nice cheeses. My favorite cheese of all time is Roquefort, which is a, a blue cheese. Um, so that's one fun fact about cheese. And one tip for people, in fact, casein intolerance, A1 casein intolerance is typically more common than lactose intolerance, weirdly enough. Um, and so when I work with people, a lot of the times, if they're having dairy problems, I'll switch them just to uh, A2, A2 uh, cheeses, and they typically do fine. In fact, one woman I know lost 12 pounds from only that change, and she was just ecstatic about it. So I guess the link between inflammation and, uh, and weight gain. But I'm not saying it's going to happen with everybody. But What are some, uh, what are some symptoms that uh, people may experience if they're having that type of intolerance? Everybody manifests differently. So um, constipation might be one, diarrhea might be another. So really differences in bowel motility. Um, inflammation can cause so many different things. So you might have particular rashes, you might just have an inflamed joint a little bit. It's, it's pretty nonspecific. So, um, it, you know, it could be anything from like, you could get cheese headaches. You could get you know eczema you could get really anything and there's a lot of things also in cheeses that can cause this so when working with people around cheese like um things to consider and we might not have time to go into all this but there's not just the casein but there's also like tyramine and histamine um so different cheeses have different levels of these components and um those are things to consider when kind of troubleshooting your cheese diet so um just because I guess people might be okay with me going on tangents about cheese. This is an interesting topic. Um, I want to, uh, let's talk about um, histamine as an example, because we're talking about, a lot about inflammation. And um, histamine is a molecule that a lot of people might have heard of from antihistamines, these allergy medications. So histamine is a molecule that's released by immune cells called mast cells as part of an allergic response and causes inflammation. But um, bacteria in cheeses can also create it. So you take the amino acid histidine and you decarboxylate it and you make histamine. And so during the cheese fermentation process, you can actually make um, histamine. And histamine in like fermented products can cause similar issues in people that are histamine intolerant. So some people have genetic mutations. I actually happen to have one of these mutations, an enzyme called diamine oxidase. Um, but I know some women, and this is the reason I want to talk about histamine in particular, that are 
sensitive to histamine rich cheeses, which are typically aged cheeses and fermented cheeses, particularly during the um, follicular phase of their, their um, menstrual cycle. And this is because the enzyme that breaks down histamine, diamine oxidase, cycles with the menstrual cycle. So it's um, at its lower levels during um, menses and the week after. So I know some women that are sensitive to particular cheeses and also actually chocolate, ironically, I guess this is maybe when chocolate cravings arrive, but to certain cheeses in chocolate, which can be histamine irritants during their um, um, menses and a week afterwards. And then at other times when the diamine oxidants levels come up because there's a change in hormones, they're not as sensitive to those cheeses. As with everything, women are the more complicated of the species and everything gets more complicated than women, including diet. Um, so that's kind of just an interesting thing, but what it really comes down to, I think for all people, and th this is what I want to come back to well when saying, you know, nutrition is just an interesting personal journey is nobody can tell you what's the optimal diet for you. You just have to be open and willing and observant and think about these things as experiments. You know, some foods might irritate you that don't irritate other people. In fact, some foods definitely will irritate you that don't irritate other people. And it's not always easy. In fact, it's impossible to go to the literature and just, just figure out what's going to hurt me and what's not going to hurt me. Because we're all bio-individual, all we unique. We all have incredibly distinct microbiomes. So the best thing you can do is just to be observant. All these fun facts aside, histamine, proline, 67 histamine mutations, whatever. It's a lot of jargon I'm throwing out, and I apologize for that. But uh, the takeaway is, I think, is that this is a fun individual journey. It should be. Um, there's a lot of mechanisms we're still trying to figure out, but test food, see what works for you. Be a scientist in your own right. You can learn about the funk facts. Hopefully this will inspire you to do so, the book. But um, I think food should be fun. It should be intellectual as well as uh, a gustatory pleasure. So I, I hope people can achieve that. The more people that I can get with that mindset, uh, the more I think I've succeeded. Yes, food should definitely be fun. And I personally have learned how to cook this year. It was something that I've just never really been into um, other than basic foods that I would eat. And I think the science behind just being able to cook a good meal that's flavorful and also the science behind that food fueling your body and healing you is just very fascinating. And that's why I absolutely loved your book. Um, in closing... What do you think are the three main takeaways that people should think about when they think of their health in terms of what we spoke about on the podcast? Um, well, speaking about the, the pathology of disease, I would say the key terms to know and understand are oxidative stress, inflammation, and insulin resistance. Oxidative stress, remember, is the bull in the cellular china shop. It bounces around, damages everything, membranes, proteins, DNA. Um, inflammation is when your immune system army is overactive and it can damage your own body. And then insulin resistance is when your body starts ignoring the hormone insulin, you know, just like you ignore a fan in the background, you become habituated to it. And these together contribute to whatever metabolic disease ails you. It could be Alzheimer's, it could be heart disease, whatever. That's the kind of thing to understand. I think those are really important terms to understand because if people are listening to podcasts like yours, they're going to crop up again and again. So hopefully those analogies are helpful. 
we talked a lot about cholesterol. So um, it's important to understand the distinction between why LDL cholesterol, which is perceived as the main villain, goes up on a standard American diets versus on ketogenic diets. So on standard American diets, you're populating your blood with sugar glaciers. The LDL boats, again, boats, not cholesterol themselves, the boats are getting damaged by the sugar and they're dropping to the bottom of the artery walls, causing a plaque. Whereas on a ketogenic diet, you need more boats to transport more fat fuel around the body. That's a healthy boat economy versus, uh, you can call it a titanic disaster if you want to get punny, the boat sinking down. Um, and then I guess if you want to look at your, your a standard lipid panel or, or a set of labs and just kind of interpret it for yourself, the key things I'd look for is on a standard lipid panel, look at your triglyceride to HDL ratio. You want it lower. If you can get a triglyceride to HDL ratio near one or below, that is amazing. That's fantastic. You get a gold star for me. Other things to look for, and this might not be in a standard lipid panel, but your doctor can definitely order this. If they don't order a subfractionation, which we best, is uh, a CRP or an HSCRP. That's a standard marker of inflammation. You want that pretty low. I would try to get your HSCRP below one. Um, and then an HbA1c. HbA1c is glycated hemoglobin, and it's a marker of um, prediabetes, diabetes, and, you know, in general kind of insulin resistance. HbA1c below 5.7% is good. If you can get it near 5%, that's amazing. And if you can get uh, a subfractionated lipid panel um, from your doctor where you can see different sizes of cholesterol, then you want to look for really low, small um, LDL. Um, and this will be part of what's called pattern A, where you have the big, large LDL on the less, medium, and small. So um, just in summary, standard lipid panel, look for a low triglyceride to HDL ratio. If you can get it to one below, that's great. A low HSCRP, maybe below one. A low HbA1c, hopefully below 5.7. And then if you can get a subfractionated lipid panel, look for small LDL. Um, and then I guess the last thing was in every, whatever way you can, try to find a way to enjoy learning about nutrition because I think, you know, people have to take responsibility for their health. And that doesn't mean displacing all of the responsibility on the patient. But I talk about, um, I think patient-centered uh, care has been a term that's overused, but patient-collaborative care, where people really have to be their own advocates. They have to go to the doctor with some degree of information, be pushy, be there, you know, and, and then communicate with the doctor. And the doctor should give a little bit and the patients should give a little bit and people should meet in the middle. It should be a collaboration between physician and, and doctor. And the only way you're really going to be able to collaborate with your doctor is if you really invest in this and take some responsibility for it and hopefully enjoy it. Again, not a chore, but nutrition as a lifelong personal uh, journey. Experiment on yourself. Find what works. Um, I think that can be very fun and rewarding. Uh, those are my summary points, I suppose. Yes, I, I love all of them, especially the last one in collaboration with your doctor and taking responsibility for your health and in learning. So, Nick, where can people find you and when can they purchase your book? Um, people can find me on uh, Twitter. That's where I'm currently most active. I'm relatively new to social media. Don't use Instagram yet. Um, I don't know if I can afford the time sync before med school, but... <laughs> Uh, I have fun facts of the day coming out 
every day. That's kind of my staple. So every morning I'll put a fact of the day, a random fact about food that's hopefully engaging for people. And you can find me at Nick Norwitz on Twitter. And then I'm writing a little bit for a keto diet app. My partner in the cookbook is Martina Slariova, who um, is the founder of Keto Diet App. So I write blogs there. You can find blogs and, and newly little lectures. I'm putting out little punchy, hopefully five to six minute lectures um, because I know people like me have short attention spans and they just kind of want the, the point rather than me rambling here. So I can think about what I say rather than just going on tangents left and right, which is how my brain works. But So we just put one out on um, omega-6 and 3 fats. So everything you know need to know about omega-3s and um, in five or six minutes. So people can check that out and see if they like that kind of content. And then I'm pretty responsive to um, tweets and comments on the blog post. So if you have any questions, um, I do my best to respond to um, every, every question. So definitely feel free to reach out. And um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Norwitz. This was a pleasure having you on, and I know our listeners are going to obtain a lot of value. So thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brad. Thank you for listening to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast. We are now available on iHeart Podcasts and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.